action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What, what Mad Universe. As soon as I had observed that extremely well-developed cranium, hypertrophied in places as if swollen by an excess of brain tissue, as soon as, more than anything else, those large eyes, lit by an interior gleam, had met mine, I understood once and for all that this creature was endowed with reason. I recall searching doggedly for some vestige of humanity, in order to diminish to some extent the disturbance that realization imported into my most profound intellectual habits, but the monster's appearance was in no way reminiscent of a man's. It stood crouched on its hind limbs, and obviously walked in some fashion using its tail for support. Its grotesquely short arms, instead of hanging down to rest along its sides, seemed literally to spring from its breast. It had no true hands, but had very long and delicate fingers attached directly to its wrists, longer it seemed to me than the arms themselves and slightly reminiscent of tentacles. There was no trace of hair on the face, but a dull white skin that put me in mind of the flayed head of a veal calf. The eyes were round, slightly bulbous, framed without visible eyelids and preeminent orbits. Instead of a nose, there were two gaping holes from which mist emerged. Beneath them there was a wide slit of a reptilian mouth, equipped with a multitude of sharp teeth, which the thin and horny lips did not quite cover. Beads of saliva were oozing from the two corners of these lips, which almost touched the mobile and minuscule ears. The chin was non-existent, or hidden beneath the flaccid folds of soft skin piled on the neck and the upper part of the torso. Then two white, tenuous, almost diaphanous eyelids, like those of snakes or birds, flashed back and forth, momentarily bailing the eyes. It was no longer possible to go on seeking to delude myself. This creature and contemporary humans were not descended from the same ancestor. The People of the Pole, 1907, by Charles Durain. Greetings, humans, and welcome to what mad universe. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, pterodactyl in my throat. Uh, I'm your host, Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hi, Ren. Uh, Hi, Ren. <laughs> today we're talking about an obscure French science fiction story about the discovery of a race of dinosaur people at the North Pole. So th this is uh, an obscure one, and not one that had a lot of influence, but I think it's interesting in its own right. Yeah, it's really interesting. It almost reads like a subversion of, like it had to have been written by someone at that era who could plausibly be written a Vernian science fiction tale instead of like a modern pastiche of it. But yeah, it, it's really interesting and ahead of its time in a lot of ways, I would say. As uh, Brian Stableford, who translated this along with a lot of the other French books we look at, um, 
pointed out in his introduction to the book, it's really dated in some ways, like some specific ways, with the use of taking a balloon to the North Pole, both with the idea that, that zeppelins or blimps would be the primary mode of travel, which only had a few years lifespan as, as a probability before heavier-than-air flight was deemed to be probably the way to go, and the other being, of course, the discovery of the North Pole, which happened very soon after the book came out. Right. So, like, it was on a very short time frame for when it could be relevant, but if anything, that actually helps it nowadays, because it comes across as, like, a steampunk throwback thing. Right, right. Like, it wasn't in print until, even in French, until, like, this again, till the 70s. This was from 1907 originally and fell out of print. It seemed to have come back in the 70s a bit, and it wasn't translated until this edition, which was, I think, around 2007. Oh, okay. But it was published in 1907 originally. It yes. It wasn't very popular or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and it fell out of print for, yeah. Okay. The the writer had a wide, varied career, it seems like. He, he did do other fantastical stuff, but nothing else science fiction, so this is an outlier in his work. Hmm, yeah, we've, we've seen a few people like that who did sort of one science fiction work, but were better known for various other uh, forms of writing. I, uh, Jess Nevins had a whole thread a while back about how Edward Bulwer-Lytton wrote in all these different genres, and we mostly remember him for his somewhat awkwardly written <laughs> sci-fi books, basically, but yeah. Or the intro to that one, which I think was just a melodrama. Right, the... Uh, Dark and Stormy Night one. Yeah, the famous one, yeah, exactly. But yeah, that seems to have been a thing at the time, you know, you would just leap across genres... I guess hoping for something to stick. Or maybe it was just because you were, uh, you know, trying to be a renaissance man or woman, just doing every, usually man, I guess, trying to try as many different as genres as you could in different styles. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, you're also writing to what sells. Yeah, uh, well, yes, exactly. But it, it does seem to, some of these people were sort of, they were well off enough or they were in the upper class of society, so they could probably get away with, you know, writing whatever they felt like. But you're right, I mean, they'd still want to sell books and make them popular. Remember, like, Lord Dunsany, for instance, just... Uh, his stuff was vanity published because he was a lord, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, no, this is really, uh, really interesting, interesting book. Uh, do you mind if I kind of break down the the plot of it a bit yep, here? Yeah, that's uh, fine. Just as we're going. So yeah, in some ways, I guess the classic uh, Jules Verne inspired science fiction type narrative of an exploration by, in this case, I guess it's Edwardian era rather than Victorian era uh, explorers from Europe heading out either to like some remote land, as you say, the the North Pole was a popular place for speculation in the 19th century and early 20th century until, as you say, they were <laughs> they did in fact conquer the Pole very shortly after this was written. And in fact, uh, the expedition that gets mentioned in this was a real one, right? The Wellman expedition, yeah, um, which he sees as their rival expedition. So he was he was literally writing it as they were planning a a, a forthcoming expedition to the Pole. That seemed to, from my understanding from the intro that again Stableford wrote, that expedition turned out to be like a publicity stunt that people lost patience with mm, yes because it was who was it that actually was it perry that discovered the north pole i can't remember who, who had, or got to the north pole at, at first but yeah like so and they were they uh, these people were also going to go in a zeppelin if i recall if i've got that correct yeah uh, but that was as you say pretty impractical <laughs> I, I i've got to assume because of winds and stuff it wouldn't have and maybe just the temperature in general wouldn't have worked but anyway so you've got two guys the two characters first of first of all you have a framing narrative with a I guess he's just a man of letters. He's not a scientist specifically, but they discover this. He and his friend discover writing in an oil, a, a gasoline can, a petrol can, as he says, and uh, along with some bones of what appears to be some kind of fantastical animal. In fact, it seems to be a humanoid 
but descended from reptilian stock instead of mammalian stock, ape, ape stock. So not even a not even human by any stretch of the imagination. And the narrator gets very carried away with it and excited about it. And then his friend sort of unveils this message that he's found, uh, similar to you know Edgar Allan Poe message found in a bottle. And I think uh, Arthur Conan Doyle Lost World has the same yep. thing of you know oh I've here let me write this message to you so that someone might read it about yeah the and the same with uh, Land that Time Forgot and that sort of thing. Right, yeah, exactly. Very common trope. Trope, yeah. And so the main story is about the narrator is a guy named Jean-Louis de Venasque, who is a French minor, I guess, noble. I'm not sure exactly where we stood at this point, but he does mention, like, post-French Revolution, but I think, I guess he still had his title and lands and so forth. Uh, yeah, a lot of them a lot of them did keep their <laughs> their titles and lands. They just went away for a bit and then came back, which, again, puts, puts lie to a lot of Baroness Orsi's uh, issues with the French Revolution. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, no, yeah, that's right. I know to this day there's still... It's like a temporary inconvenience to some of them. (laughs) Well, I mean, a lot of them did get beheaded. That did happen. But but, um, yeah, no, he he was... Yeah, anyway, so he was... uh, But yeah, I know that things like Marquis and so forth stuck around in France and I I assume still exist to this day. Anyway, he's... uh, The point is he's a rich guy and he's got that sort of wanderlust and desire to discover something great. He meets a guy named Jacques Saint-Trasse, I think that's the pronunciation. Saint, Saint yeah, I, I looked it up. It doesn't seem to be a name that's common, so I couldn't find a pronunciation for it. Right. And this is a French uh, writer, of course, uh, translated into English, although he writes about having been in England a lot. And Jacques saint Tress is a an inventor who has an idea for a, a new kind of Zeppelin, a new kind of airship that he thinks could be amazing and discover great new worlds and so forth. Basically, he proposes essentially everything that happens in the book, and Devanasque leaps up and says, this is the man I've been looking for my entire life, and I've got the money, I'll fund it, and we'll go on an expedition to the North Pole in your Zeppelin, and, and we'll become great explorers, and they're jubilant and celebrate and everything like that very quickly and they so they set out on this uh, building the zeppelin and then on the expedition it very quickly goes a bit sour because according to vanask Divinask, who's the narrator who is the narrator saint tress is a a really unpleasant guy he's cranky he's crotchety he has what seems like some kind of either depression or even manic depression where he has these mood swings um yeah violent mood swings where he'll change from absolutely despairing one minute and then exuberant the next right and and also having a massive again according to devinask uh which is a crucial point we'll come back to he's got a massive ego as well and he wants to be he's doing this because he wants his name sung praise to the heavens and to be to go down in history as one of the great men of history and so forth and that interferes with like the workman didn't like him because he's he's a bully to them and so forth and Vanask is sort of increasingly frustrated and furious with with this guy and right before they set out from they're going to go to Siberia take a ship to Siberia and launch the airship from there to go to the North Pole Saint Tress talks about he's engaged to get married and uh, David Ask literally says I well I started looking around for a revolver to blow his head off basically <laughs> um, and uh, but it gets the kibosh is put on that because the, the girl and her parents don't want them to marry someone who's about to head off to the North Pole and possibly die but uh, so things go on ahead but there's a lot of friction and personality clashing between these two on the on the trip up anyway they get to the pole and uh, which they find bathed in an odd violet light which is they do mention the Aurora Borealis, but apparently this is something else entirely. They find that there's like a warm 
area, warmer temperature with, with vegetation at the pole, were sort of low grasses and very low ferns and cacti, I think yep. they described them, uh, that no, no more than a meter tall grow through this area. Yeah, it says that the branches seem somehow to, to grow outwards instead of upwards, like, mm-hmm. like trees do here. Right, and the sun is not very strong, but there's a, you know, implied to be a very strong uh, level of electromagnetic energy, which sort of matches up with the real North Pole, does have, you know, obviously the pole has an electromagnetic pole, uh, not to, to this degree, but it, it has a lot of unusual effects, as it turns out. And they see strange animals and, and odd vegetation. They see uh, lumps of what they think are snow, but then they realize it's moving and migrating around. Do we actually get an explanation for that? I can't remember. I assumed those were the people of the pole seen from a distance, because they're white. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But yeah, it's 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 left a little vague. And in fact, they Divinasks and Saintress, like they kind of freak out as soon as they witness this land. They start so saying like, and, and in the light, they say they appear like corpses that have come to life, they, as in the two humans do. They appear like humans who have come to life, and it it really freaks them out. Yeah, and also there's no shadows. Like this is not just a weird violet light source. This is the air itself becoming luminous in some way. Right, it creates a soft light so that there's no shadows, which and, and which makes the perspective a little strange because there's no shading to indicate, you know, how far away things are and so forth. Yeah, you can only differentiate things by the color, and even then there's like a violet light cast over everything, so um, they only stumble across a cave because they're close to it, like they couldn't see it from a distance, that sort of thing. Right. I always find this kind of thing interesting because, you know, in in this kind of 19th century, early 20th century science fiction, you'll occasionally see ideas like this tossed out. You know, the famous, you know, H.P. Lovecraft color out of space where, like, it's a color that nobody's ever seen before. Things that you, nowadays, we tend to think sort of more cinematically, even if that's not the goal when writing science fiction. But, you know, they would write something like that that you could literally not picture that's beyond our ability to imagine and this has an element of that like it's you know I, I maybe I'm just not imaginative but I couldn't I couldn't imagine that I couldn't imagine a place where there's like the, the lighting is such that you can't uh, see perspective and distances clearly anyway, um, I, I could um, but in the sense that because uh, they described it like uh, children's painting like before right. you figure out shading so it's just flat shapes like right the, the mountain is just like a big slab of one color and then there's a I, I don't know, say a house that's another color right yeah and like there's no there's no idea that you know one of them is farther away from the you know it just sort of flat yeah. slabs of color yeah but very it would certainly be like if you were to make a movie of this it would it would it would be very if you were going to be accurate about it it would be yeah. very difficult uh, yeah uh, th- this uh this would be very hard to film for that reason like it would look terrible on film but it it works in describing it in the book i feel yeah uh, there's a bit of a lovecraft vibe but that's you know it's somewhat reminiscent of the non non euclidean space that you know lovecraft wrote about as well oh yeah i think a lot of the, i think lovecraft would have liked this i mean he didn't speak french to my knowledge so he wouldn't have read this but i think he would have liked it if he had well it was it was the kind of thing that was in the water at the time that he was writing like it's that that's you know, as i say it it feeds out of all the the classic sort of pulp because he wrote his own going to the north pole and encountering bizarre uh, creatures. Or that was and, South Pole, but yes. Yeah, South Sorry, you're right. <laughs> South Pole. <laughs> Same basic premise, you know. Uh, of course, it had to be the South Pole because by the time he was writing, the North Pole had been mapped fairly 
extensively. And, and also, he was referencing the uh, Arthur Gordon Pym. Right. But yeah, anyway, it's, it's, it's a, it was, fer- as we've said, it's fertile ground. Uh, anyway, so these guys then discover that their Zeppelin or their airship has been locked down and cannot move. With magnetism. With ma- apparently magnetism. They're on a brown rectangular stone that holds it in place and again there's a bit more of a freak out but they do realize they could let go of the shock absorbers and drift back up into into the air so they a little bit lackadaisically (laughs) decide to go out and keep exploring and they realize they're being watched by a race of seemingly intelligent beings that over the course of a time start to drift closer and closer to them and they start to spot them at the same time saintress something's wrong with saintress he seems to be going insane whereas uh Diverask is not which he credits to alcohol eventually he, he decides because he was drinking a lot and saintress was not it's what kept him sane and it's uh, again he, he seems to imply that it's an, part of the electromagnetic effects of the pole yeah also whoever's watching them is periodically putting them to sleep like creating an artificially induced sleep effect on them and alcohol seems to cancel that out right okay so it was the the people of the pole who were doing it it wasn't just an effect of the electromagnetic that's what i assumed yes because yeah yeah, the the people were uh, while he was faking being asleep at one point that's when he first encounters them Right, they're coming up and investigating them while yeah. they sleep, basically. And from that, uh, David Ask sort of says, um, well, you know, these guys are not, they don't mal- malicious in intent, or at least not in a way that's clear to us, because they could have just killed us multiple times at this point. So they, so then there's a series of attempts to sort of communicate with them. They end up smuggling themselves into the to their uh, underground stronghold, because they live underground. And, like, they had encountered their doors, but they couldn't get through because they were locked up tight. Again, with magnetism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Mag- these guys use magnetism magnets and electricity for most of their technology so they do turn out to be fairly advanced they have a weird culture they are cannibals they eat their own young but that's partly to keep their population in check because the resources are limited up at the pole to be clear this is like a small valley that they live in they, they have to keep their their population in check because they only have so much territory that they can survive in because the outside is really cold and this one area is is warm because I think it said it was hot springs underneath or some sort of geyser activity. They yeah they did they mentioned something about yeah geysers I guess were were the thing I, I again I was kind of mentally attributing it to the electromagnetic properties of that valley as well but yeah it's and, and also just that seemed to be a thing that again it's in the post story Edgar on or. Uh, Arthur Gordon Pym of just, you know, it's, just, oh, when you go to the, the pole, there's a, suddenly things get warm. That seemed to be a thing people almost believed would be true uh, because of the convection or something. I don't know. Yeah, right back to, like, Greek mythology, like Hyperborea. Right, yeah. Hyperborea is uh, the land beyond the north wind, and it's warm and always sunny. Right, right. It's always sunny in Hyperborea. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, that's been a, a common idea in European folklore for a long time. Anyway, so, but it's, I, I don't know, there may have been some scientific speculation about it as well at the time. But anyway, uh, so they, they do have a weird culture and they, they also seem to put their older ones to death unless they happen to have like advanced knowledge that they need. So he does talk about one old one who runs the machines that seem to keep the lights on and keep the magnets working for things like the the doors and so forth and and keep the the uh, the violet light running because that's an artificial thing it's implied right right yeah whatever what their whole lifestyle is dependent on machines in one way or another and there's like an old wizened master person they don't really get a name the people of the pole as mentioned they are reptilian they're like basically implied to be descendants of dinosaurs it says uh, iguanodon specifically and there are 
there are pterodactyls that they eat and stuff. So right, like small small, uh, and also birds for some reason. Like yeah, just modern day birds and, and fish. Like, yeah, modern yeah. fish. Yeah. Well, they had fish back then too. That's a common form. Yeah. Well, that well, I mean, as Stableford points out in the uh, intro, he just talks about like one of the things that's interesting about this is it doesn't just assume like evolution frozen in this valley. It like it just took a different branch. So they the whatever the ancient life forms that came into this valley were, they continued to evolve. And I mean, birds being there makes a certain amount of sense because birds could fly into the valley, right? So they would come along later and, oh, yeah. and, and join the thing. So, but there's definitely, and even the pterodactyls, he says they're pterodactyls, but they're like, they're fairly, they're tiny. Um, so like they must've at there least were evolved. small pterodons, but yeah. Yeah, it's true. But like you can imply that things continued to evolve in this valley basically in, in, in their own way. And that would make sense again in a small area with a limited food sources you know your your organisms are gonna get smaller so that they don't need as much food basically so like that that is one of the things that's kind of interesting about this one is that it it goes with the idea of like it's not just exactly as it was 65 million years ago it's they've they've followed a different branch of evolution basically including of course developing uh, intelligent life forms and so then it eventually becomes fairly positive interaction between the 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 humans and the uh the other beings. Though both sides seem to think the others are physically repulsive to an uh, extreme degree. Right. Like, this seems to be a mutual thing. Yeah. They can't properly communicate either, like, the because their mouths don't make... Again, this is, like, pretty insightful for the early 20th... Like, very early 20th century. Like, that they can't communicate because their mouths are shaped differently. Like, they do, literally don't have the, the the organs to speak each other's language, basically. So they can... they can, But they can kind of understand what they're communicating with each other but but essentially these guys are not non-violent and they do take apart the zeppelin's uh, engine for a while to apparently just to study it but then eventually they put it back together for them and saintress was sort of you know he's been very hostile towards them but then he starts to say oh okay you know that's not so bad and divinask is convinced that oh they're they're friendly and and i mean there's no hostility like i say they don't they don't attack even though the humans are somewhat like they'll shove past them and so forth and they'll just be confused about it and so forth there's there's interesting stuff about their culture that we see and it it again goes to the campbell quote about give me a, a being that thinks as well as a man or better but not like a man these aren't aliens per se but they're alien in the small a sense it reminded me a bit of ursula k Guin's story the word for world is forest which i might have mentioned when we did the Guin episode but it was and which is also the basis for both avatar and return of the jedi in that it was these alien beings on that planet who didn't really have the idea of hostility per se they they could sort of fight each other but they wouldn't wage war basically they would attack other animals and fight them off but they wouldn't fight between themselves and these these are reminiscent of that you know almost a century earlier just the idea of these the, you know like they don't understand the concept of vengeance vengeance is certainly yeah like they could be hostile in sort of an animalistic way but the idea of like sentient beings attacking each other is is sort of new to them basically it's shown that their primary thing seems to be utility if one of them can't do their job anymore like they literally will cut their own throat with a machine yeah <laughs> like press right. a button which come which like just casually slits their own throat and then the other person who's like their understudy just takes over like right. without any ceremony just that's what happens <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah exactly so there's no yeah i guess you could say they're hyperlogical in a sense but that obviously does 
creep both the humans, but especially Saintress out a bit. Yeah, and like you said, they also eat their young. Uh, it's shown they they have like a, a nesting thing with a bunch of eggs that hatch, and then all of them, the young, are running out. Uh, all of them just suddenly get ha- seemingly happy all of a sudden and start eating these things. Yeah. And it's the only communal meal that the uh, the two humans have seen these uh, creatures done and usually they just like snack on on uh, roasted fish that out of their pockets and stuff it also should be said the description at the beginning with the white white flesh is actually clothing that they're wearing they they sort of have a, a white leather cloak over their entire bodies and it's we, we don't really see them outside of that so we don't even know what color they are necessarily Right, but it it is mentioned that that's like the skin of their own kind that they use. Oh, okay. Right? That's yeah, what I, that was. Yeah, again, it I missed was, that if that's the case, but that makes sense. Yeah, he said because remember he says there's no larger animals in the pole, right, for them to yeah. hunt for things. And and he he literally yeah he kind of he elides over it a little bit, but he says that's why I was. I thought it was just initially. I thought that was just their skin, and I realized it was clothing. But it's clothing they've weighed out of the skin of their own kind. So again, they this is them using their own kind essentially as whatever needs for utility's sake, basically. It's it's also said that the females sort of gather up the this clothing skin around their heads to form like a hood situation. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like some sort of fashion, and the the narrator suggests is coquetry uh is female coquetry uh, throughout even another a non-human species <laughs> you know like like thanks guy uh, anyway um but yeah they they um when they're ready to go at this point you know they've they've sort of had a somewhat amicable parting on the way but then uh, two of the beings jump on board the zeppelin and it seems like their their goal is that they want to come with them and basically witness what the world is going to be outside of the the valley and then there's some discussion but they basically decide okay well what what's going to happen when they see outside the world it's like well it'll prove that everything we saw happened (laughs) obviously it'll be demonstration and it's a great advance for science potentially but also it's like well what will be will we be introducing them to the world outside what what will that mean and divin ask actually uh frames it as in terms of like cultural contamination basically that we might be distorting their culture but of course then it quick in a minute it becomes something else saintress as the as the airship is taking off it kind of shudders and gets held back they didn't really give a reason for that did they that i no it's it's unclear again we we don't get all the answers in this which is um Mm. interesting because again they can't communicate with these creatures so Right. We don't quite know what their motivations are, but yeah, either it's malfunction or they were actually toying with them. Yeah, it's unclear. But I mean, if they wanted to send two of their own with them, it's not clear why would they would be. And everything else seems to indicate they want. It's okay for them to leave. So it's it's a little bit confusing in that regard. Anyway, Saintress that sort of snaps at this point and decides, oh, they're they're toying with us. They're monsters. They want to destroy us, and immediately murders one of the passenger people of the pole. And basically goes on a killing spree. He, j- he jumps back down. The airship gets dragged back down to Earth. He jumps out and starts slaughtering his way through the, the Iguanodon people 
I'll call them. And and Divin asks, sort of says, oh my god, I gotta go after him, and, you know, we've gotta sort of do something to repair this. But now they're terrified of both of them. He he comes face to face with Divin Ask, and, and Saintress has just basically gone insane. So he starts shooting, and with, he has a, a sword or a long knife, and he starts uh, killing them left and right. They don't fight back, as mentioned. And when Divin Ask comes upon him, you know, he starts telling him to stop, stop what you're doing. And he doesn't remember who he, he claims not to remember what he is. He says, I did indeed know Monsieur Saintras at one point, but he d- died a long time ago. Personally, I've been commissioned by England to conquer this land, and I fought a great battle yesterday, victoriously. My weary soldiers are sleeping on the plain. Then suddenly suspicious, come on, come on, no tricks, don't get, get in the way of my plans. Here's a piece of advice, stick to your own concerns. If you don't, I'll have you shot as a spy. I have only to give you the order, it's no trouble. My mission is humanitarian, to civilize. These people were ignorant of the uses of sunlight. I have just taught it to them. Can you conceive of such a degree of barbarity, eh? They were ignorant of the uses of sunlight. I think that's actually a really significant passage. I'll come back to it in a minute. But anyway, so he does end up dragging Saintress back onto the airship, getting them back, and then Saintress, I think it was he bails out and decides I can't live anymore and I'm going to walk home? Yeah, well, he sees that David Ask is contemplating killing him. And he says, well, if you're going to want to kill me, then I might as well just walk home by myself. And he wanders off into the cold. Right, to almost certainly die. Yeah. At which point David Ask brings down the airship and basically seems to kind of go, I don't deserve to get home, so I'm going to park it here and in the valley and just set up a little cottage and just live out the rest of my days, essentially. Uh, he writes the narrative that we're reading. The Iguanodon people come along and dismantle the airship again, so he can't leave. Or, no, it says that they realize that I don't want to leave at this point, that I've just abandoned it, so they just dismantle it. Right. And they... Um, they just leave him alone. They just leave him alone, and he tosses it into the river that runs beneath the ice, like because there are rivers in the valley which are sort of flowing beneath the ice sheets of the North Pole, which eventually carries it, apparently, to England, which is, even though it's a French book, that's where they found this uh, petrol can. And I guess the Iguanodon bones were in the petrol can as well. No, no, the Iguanodon bones were a separate thing that the sailor character at the beginning had found and right. said uh, this was... They were contemporaneous with humans, but they don't exist anywhere, but probably they exist at the North Pole because of this document. Right, okay, alright, sorry, I missed... I assume that was a like a different race of dinosaur people, because mm. they're also described differently, like narrow hips and stuff. Hmm, okay, alright, I missed a bit of that. Some of the some of the prose was a little purple, and I missed some of yeah. the descriptions there. But anyway, so then it circles back around to the main characters, and they have a sort of scientific discussion about it. Before we talk about that in the epilogue, before we talk about that, I did want to mention, though, it's just, it is really interesting the degree to which this almost feels like a little potted metaphor for European colonialism. Right? Like, uh, like, as I say, he mentions being English, which if you're French, you can, in this era, you can definitely point to the English as the, the world conquerors, the United Kingdom as, (laughs) as ruling the world and, and having that general attitude towards the inhabitants, which... Though the French did it plenty too. Oh, oh, they absolutely did. But I mean, the French, (laughs) if you're a French writer, you can kind of, uh, put it off on the English <laughs> to a certain extent. And I mean, it is fair to say like they were the real super global superpower at that time and they were guilty of that kind of stuff. And I think that's why he starts saying I'm English and I'm here to conquer and civilize the natives. Like they, they had, that was a big thing in, in British uh, colonialism. Yep. Like we're here to civilize the natives. Meanwhile, he's slaughtering them all, right? And meanwhile, you have uh, Dave and Ask as kind of the weak 
sort of liberal mindset of like oh but the individuals but he can't bring himself to kill Saintress at multiple key points or even to really do anything to help the inhabitants and at certain points himself gives into despair and and sides with Saintress on mm-hmm. them being wicked or monsters or what have you right yeah he's you know as i say so freaked out by these alien beings that he can't understand and and can't can't relate to it but like yeah it's it's funny to which to the degree this this really feels like it's commenting on that colonial impulse that's in these kinds of stories and as i say it's it's very sympathetic even though they're they're just flat out monstrous to in appearance it's really sympathetic to them like they're basically in the right the entire time right Um, yeah these two creatures just come down from the sky fiddle with their machines and then kill a bunch of them and they let the other one live Right. And yeah, it's, it's, and as you say, they're alien and they do have things like they're cannibals and so forth, but that's, you know, that's, that's their sort of native culture. And it's as he even like, he, he has a whole thing where he's like, this is horrible to us, but understand it's coming from the fact that they live in a resource, a, a small valley without a lot of resources and they have to rely on it sort of he's not just making them to be i mean he is making them to be monsters that's what's that's what's interesting about it like it's he's sort of pushing for an audience in 1905 this would have been really pushing the boundaries a bit of like what can you relate to and understand in this place right and the other aspect i don't know if you wanted to uh, had anything you want to talk about but i did want to talk about the unreliable narrator aspect of this yeah so the epilogue really recontextualizes most of the novel or, I mean, everything in it, potentially, by pointing out that, because the uh, compiler of these texts in the epilogue puts facts together to figure out if, first of all, these were real people. He finds that they were, but all the descriptions from the people in the village where they set off from and all that was that Centres was, like, a, a, a bit grumpy, but, like, a nice guy, <laughs> and that David Ask is, like, a weirdo who they just assumed was going to go mad at some point. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, they talk about like, oh, if we were going to bet on one of them going mad, it would have been Dave and Ask, basically. Who was just, yeah, unpleasant to everybody. He also looked weird. Like, there's a, there is a bit of, like, phrenology. Like, he he just looks like a madman. Yeah, right. He looked... And, well, I mean, and the narrator... He's like sallow skin and stuff, yeah. Yeah, the narrator of the frame story is like, well, I'd imagine him as this dashing, Byronic romantic hero and turns out he was a weird ugly guy you know and again i mean it's make you think as they say it is it is also like like literally the ending epilogue is a bunch of thinkers and scientists discussing the findings and to what degree it must be true and to what degree it isn't true and they literally say like oh is this all just made up was it all just a madman who killed went to the pole killed his companion and composed this document to sort of cover for them and there's a lot of back and forth which i mean it's it's certainly true i think that was a a, that was definitely a commentary on these vernian narratives this kind of arthur conan doyle narrative because it's like well if you found this letter in a bottle somewhere about a guy said i went to a crazy place and had weird adventures it's like what if he was just making it up right or delusional they're delusional well and then the other thing is of course it's the very victorian edwardian idea of madness where you like lose all touch with reality but like you can be, you can have mental health issues and still perfectly describe what's happening in reality. It doesn't, it, it's like, oh, well, a, would a madman know about what a pterodactyl is? It's like, yes, he absolutely could know what a pterodactyl is like and still be a, 
a murderer, right? Like it's not, it's, it's, it's a completely unrelated thing, right? They didn't, they always, they always had this idea that once you go mad, you like lose all touch with reality, but they didn't, they didn't understand <laughs> that the really, as it were, the, the people who were, who walked among them, who might've had mental health issues, who might've been actually sort of violent, might not have any indication that they were violent or wanted to you know kill someone oh and they were noble people and again there's a they definitely feels like they're tweaking the nobility in this right because david ask is uh it's a it's a flattering narrative about himself but then they kind of go well uh, i'm not sure that was true <laughs> i'm not sure if that's who the guy was his relationships to other people and uh, right from the beginning i did see that because i kind of felt like like even in the story as it's told he's making excuses for himself yeah it's very self-serving yeah, he's he's talking about like and Stableford brings it up in the intro, which is why I kinda knew to watch out for it. But like he's talking to Saintress is like he's so egotistical and he's so driven. It's like, well, everything you've done to describe yourself is that you're an egotist who wants to wants glory and fame. Like it, you've you've described yourself the exact same way. <laughs> you can't you can't criticize the other guy for wanting the same stuff, right? Anyway, it's it's uh it's it's quite sophisticated in that regard, which is really interesting to me. Ahead of its time in that regard. So so I actually, I read this some years back, uh, reread it for this. It's a very short book. I, I do recommend it. And it's like a Kindle version for like five bucks. So like it's it's cheap. And I actually did art of the, the People of the Pole, though it's old art and I don't really want to show it off. And they're also obliquely referenced in my comic, The Apex Society. An early issue has Adam Frankenstein, who's, you know, Frankenstein's monster from the novel, who spent time in the North Pole and uh, talking with a, a guy from the South Pole and sort of talking about similarities and there's it seems there's dinosaurs in both places in areas but Frankenstein says uh, do they talk <laughs> no that's a new one to me yeah uh, we, we can sort of discuss this relationship with like reptilian aliens or that sort of thing yeah because of course that has a lot like these aren't that but there, there's sort of some the idea of like intelligent reptile men seems to be an idea that uh, people keep coming up with independently i don't know uh, like uh, of course robert e howard in in the call story the first right. call story which in turn seems to have influenced conspiracy culture and stuff but right you, you see like snake men and stuff pop up elsewhere and it's well well i think that what was a common thing as i as i more or less mentioned in relation to this people started to think once they understood you know that dinosaurs existed and that they they had been you know ancient biological beings there was a lot of well what if they continued to evolve and became intelligent right and i think that kind of mindset had entered the public sphere by the victorian age uh, and i think that 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 idea of like reptile men came from there initially like a, as a scientifically semi-plausible idea e even as just a what if which of course pulp writers and sci-fi writers wanted to then riff on so i don't think it was like like completely independent but i think because even the even the snake people in cull are described i think as being potentially descended from the dinosaurs like in a sort of mystical way but i think uh independently is the wrong word but i just meant like not directly influenced by other versions they just come out of the same culture yeah, well, it's like how, how uh, you know, pre-antediluvian societies kind of ideas, like that was that was in both folklore and then science started giving it a little bit of p potential veracity, so I think people started to run with it, as it were. It is just interesting how it's like, it appears in folklore, and then once you have the Enlightenment, it starts to have, like, maybe a very rough scientific justification, at least enough for science fiction, and that's why people run with it. Anyway, that's, that's kind of interesting to me. Oh, uh, actually, uh, speaking of uh, 
like famous pulp stuff, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. I just I don't know why I didn't make this connection before, but in his uh, Blue Star series, the, his Hollow Earth series, the main villains of the of the series are the Mayhars, which are descended from uh, a real form of pterodon. Uh, I forget what the species was called, but they're and they're like evil psychic, and they control the Hollow Earth in those novels. So oh okay, and the, those were uh, around the same time as this one. So yeah, it's I, again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Like yeah. the idea there that they were evolved from dinosaurs and uh, or uh, okay, ter- pterodons weren't dinosaurs, but you know, well, you, you know what I mean. I'm going to call them dinosaurs. I'm sorry. You have to be a real huge nerd not to call them dinosaurs. I know that's technically correct, but yeah. Um, Sa- says the guy with with a podcast about Star Trek. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm a different kind of nerd. Thank you. Very much. <laughs> But no, it's, yeah, like, it, it, again, it's that whole thing, we've we've talked about it before, how just, like, pop culture understanding of science had this huge impact on pulp and thereby science fiction and thereby culture and, and at large. Sorry, what were you going to oh, say? Oh, yeah, that, sorry, I just remember that Voyager, uh, Star Trek Voyager episode with yep, the uh, yep. uh, race of beings in the Delta Quadrant who descended from Earth dinosaurs who right, left right. Earth at the time. And Doctor Who, as well, has the Silurians. Oh, yeah, the, the Silurians, right. Yep. Yeah, very, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a. I mean, by that point, it was really. I mean, Doctor Who was drawing from all the old pulp as well. Yeah, um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely like you, you can argue that there's like one or two really crucial pulp authors who in, inspired all this. But again, I it is kind of coming from the science, like uh, not necessarily the scientific discussions, but the popular understandings of the science discussions. It's kind of like how modern day you know sci-fi stories will be like it's nanotech or it's you know yeah or like or in the eighties. It's 70s and 80s, it's be like, the computer will build us a new... Like, computers were magic, you know? Like, that kind yeah. of thing, right? Or what um, was that Futurama quote? Um, Deepak Chopra teaches us that quantum mechanics means anything can happen at any time for no reason. <laughs> exactly. But it is funny how that kind of, like, you, you go from just folklore and it's just magical with no explanation to the same kinds of stories, but now there's a pseudo-scientific explanation for a lot of them because people buy it as as being plausible and it's the cutting edge thing so like i said i I recommend this one as like just an interesting and both a a look into a road not taken in some cases or or in some senses but also just interestingly stylistically written yeah yeah it's definitely as you said the prose is purple but uh it's got it's got some craft here that i that i appreciate yeah yeah it's it's definitely like from what i've the french pulps you know existed just as the uh the british and american pulps did and there's a certain i think wryness to french pulp and french sci-fi from what i've seen where they're i mean jules verne is from that uh era and i think there was almost a a, you know france was seen in the late 19th century as this sort of pinnacle of culture and sophistication in some ways and i think that did trickle down even to their pulp and sci-fi stuff and i i like as i say this is literarily this is a even though this is a verdian lost world story it's it's got a lot more sophisticated stuff going on than some other stuff of the same era basically so it's really interesting in that sense again the stableford intro mentions dr omega another french story i forget the other one he mentioned but uh, some other ones that i read that are a little more basic like you you know you go to a planet this weird things happen you go home you know yeah yeah. Uh, but this is more in common with like older french you know like voltaire's micro Miga, which we discussed earlier that sort of Mm -hmm. thing yeah even and that was 16th century but it was like it was it had a it it wanted to i think that was 18th it wanted to provoke a certain like uh 
chain of thought in the reader, I think, starting with the Voltaire. And I think that that's part of that tradition in a way that maybe is not as much, not as true in English speaking pulp until later, where it was like, it, it was, it, it was just here, take this, you know, <laughs> it, this is what happened. It's cool. We're not going to, we're not going to make you like try to process it or analyze it in any way. It's, or, or, or make you think beyond it. It's other than just, wouldn't this be cool? Kind of. Or um, if there is a, a theme, it's like, again, Edgar Rice Burroughs having like, the villains be standing for stand-ins for communists and right. like very blatant like this is just what they are right wait edgar rice burroughs had the villains be stand-ins for communists uh yeah in the um uh venus series oh okay which i've read the first book yeah the the villains are just very obviously the the soviet union oh okay so that was a, this was after 1918 then that he was writing oh yeah that that was a, a bit later um and there, thought... there's also uh, there's a bit of that, and uh, this is a bit off topic, but in the uh, Barsoom series, with the Tharks uh, share everything communally, like all their all their food and all their possessions, and Deja Thoris says that that's why they don't have like they they have no individuality and that sort of thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which doesn't even fit with what what we're presented with the Tharks as. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, the violet light is fading, and the polar day is turning to polar night. So that means an end to this episode of What Mad Universe. We've been wannabe explorer Philip Rice and madman balloonist Adam Prosser. Our producer was Alex Ross, who keeps the lights on, literally, by tapping on that machine of his at all times. And our theme song was whistled and hissed by Jack Furyk. Just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and various Arctic expeditions. And if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus materials, cut footage, illustrations and comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, 1L, or Adam Prosser, 2S's, or what-mad-universe.pinecast.co for the links. You can also follow us on Blue Sky at What Mad Universe or Prankster36 for Adam, or Spear Hafok with an F for me. So until next time, drink lots of alcohol to avoid falling into the induced sleep of the people of the pole. <laughs>